The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. The Oscar shortlist is right around the corner, and recently we've had the good fortune to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's new documentaries that are in the hunt for an Academy Award. These include Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, who talked to us about her beautifully layered and timely portrait of the descendants of the slave ship Clotilda. We also spoke with Tamana Ayazi and Marcel Metalzifin, directors of In Her Hands, which follows the courageous young mayor of an Afghan town who fights for women's rights against the backdrop of the country's takeover by the Taliban. And we had a chance to speak with Elvis Mitchell, director of Is That Black Enough For You, his celebration of black cinema in the late 1960s and the 70s. Finally, Chris Smith joined us to discuss his new documentary, Senior, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in tribute to his late father, the pioneering filmmaker Robert Downey Sr. Be sure to listen to these conversations at our feed and watch these films now all available on Netflix. Today I'm speaking with Reed Davenport about his film, I Didn't See You There. Here's what Reed had to say when I asked him to describe his film. So when the circus sound goes up outside my apartment, I have to confront the legacy of the freak show as well as I pass autobiographical filmmakers fit into its tradition with the camera pointing away from myself. I capture the personal of the poetic for my wheelchair. I Didn't See You There debuted at Sundance, where Reed won the directing award for U.S. documentaries. His film has been nominated for several other awards, and at the San Francisco Film Festival, he won the award for Bay Area Documentary Feature, which really isn't a surprise to me because the film, as we discuss in this conversation, is a love letter to Oakland. I found the film simply compelling or maybe propelling because we see the world from Reed's eyes rolling through Oakland, often at some speed. And these scenes are fun, almost video game-like, in that as Reed makes his way through the urban environment, we wonder, how is he going to get around that? Or how is he going to navigate this? As you'll hear, and as the title hints, Reed wants us to focus less on words and meaning and more on the visible, and in particular, on his unique way of seeing the world in the moment. That being said, his disquisitions on the legacies of Barnum, of the quote-unquote freak show are very well observed and eloquent, if at times searing. As I said, the film is fun to watch and Reed is fun to speak with, but he's also an advocate for himself. And if you are like me, I think you will find that after watching the film, you probably won't mindlessly stand in the middle of a curb cut or unthinkingly look down at your phone as you stroll along a sidewalk. If you enjoy this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod. Also, you can follow us both on Twitter and Instagram at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Reed Davenport about his film, I Didn't See You There. So let me say, I really enjoyed this film and I recognized I was being challenged by it. And, you know, it's really kind of mundane stuff in some ways. It's just about your life. But you bring this fresh perspective for me, at least figuratively and, and literally. And I really couldn't stop watching. And I know you problematized that a little bit, but I was really wanting to watch. So 
Great film. Let me start with the opening. And a lot of documentaries now start with like a five to seven minutes before the title card. And you don't do that. You just bring us right in. And we're at this kind of angle and we're rolling by a BART train. And BART for everybody is Bay Area Rapid Transit. It's a system that runs throughout the Bay Area. And you say when the train starts accelerating after I do, there's a moment when we are going exactly the same speed. And then you show this. Can you tell us why did you start there? I've been here. A bit of wild because it was Monday. It's part of the thought process that I had had when I took public transit. It's also a little bit of the local I can do that are the non-disabled people or non-wheelchair can do. People who walk don't have that mechanic pace that I do at Bogdan. I really like films that have these kind of ruminations that are not necessarily connected to a thesis of a film, but rather put viewers into kind of this everyday situation. Yeah, I think that I totally get that. And by the way, a lot of your scenes moving in your chair are really kind of fun. They're fun for a while. And then we see some frustrations. I want to talk about that. The other thing I think is you really show from the beginning your sense of humor, right? So you tell a little story about how at BART, they make it hard for you to pay. It's easier for you not to pay. And you say, I got caught once. That made me rethink it, but not enough. Yeah, I mean, this is like that everyday existential question that wheelchair users are the best. I mean, the wheelchair users who have to be thinking of something like that this system is this infrastructure set up so it's really inconvenient for me to pay. So why do I pay? What does that mean? Yeah. Like, is it a win going like we don't have to pay? Or is it like, no, we expect you to jump through these hoops and pay? Right from the beginning, as you said, you show us this kind of different way of seeing the world, different for me at least. And you talk about how you've got a camera that you could use, you could be spontaneous with. You hadn't been able to shoot your films before, but now you could. It's about the wheelchair and the camera, but it's also, you say, looking for shapes and patterns without worrying about meanings and words. And I think that's interesting because your narration is really interesting and good. So what do you mean without worrying about meanings and words? I think for me, if I am working with a GP or a bad, if I'm working with someone who's a GP, if you will, I really have to think about what I want them to shoot. And it's almost like the time I have with the GP is precious, and I have to be really articulate about what I want. Whereas if I'm going to shoot it when I wake up one day, and I just want to kind of fool around, see what kind of looks cool, I can do that with this camera. You show us a lot of scenes like of you moving forward and you shoot the ground. You talk about how you're closer to the ground, so it's easy to shoot the ground, but it's really fascinating. We see like blocks of color. We see these different textures. 
at one point you're so close, it looks like the ground's kind of sizzling or bubbling. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to show people how beautiful it could be to operate in a wheelchair and how I appreciate the beauty that I know others could as well. I think in some ways the movie is a little, I know you're living in Brooklyn now, but it is a little bit of a love letter. Absolutely. To Oakland, mixed. (laughs) So let's talk about that a little bit. So early on, there's a great scene. You're making your way through Oakland and there's a little bit of light music and things are going well. And someone says, happy Sunday to you. And it's very kind of festive and fun. And then boom, you cut to someone blocking a car blocking the curb cut and the crosswalk. And they're sort of polite about it, but you know, they, they blocked the way. And then what's really interesting, even after that, even after they move, as you make your way across the cobblestones and the brooks on the other side, I think you really are starting to point out some of the problems with people blocking your way, but also some of the infrastructure problems, right? Sure. So I do like to say that I'm actually partially because I feel like Oakland showed me that that I didn't necessarily deserve <laughs> as a white transplant into the bay. So that is something I've always grappled with as a kind of imposition I represent, but mm. also how Oakland didn't make me feel like an imposition. I, I do also have to say, um, Jim the Butt, Coder, and this is his kind of theory that with the gentrification of the battle came this erosion of the acceptable haven that we were all promised mm. that started in the East Race, Pacific, the San Francisco, so there are really like so many forces in Oakland that is made that I have grappled with and at the end of the day, I'll never forget. No, that's so clear. As I said, a lot of this movie, and it's right from the beginning, is motion and then stillness and motion and stillness. And that what, that's what pulls me in. Like, you know, like I want to keep going with you. But as I said, there's this visual motif, and you mentioned it when you talked about the log line. You first, we see it, like the tent in your neighborhood, the circus tent. You show it to us, I think, a few times before you tell us what it means to you and how it reminds you of P.T. Barnum. And Barnum, of course, in the 19th century, kind of popularizes the quote-unquote freak show with quote-unquote, huge quote-unquote, human oddities. And I think, as another example of your use of language, you say, any and every identity coalesced in complex disenfranchisement and were looked at under the brightest of lights, which is a great way of saying it. Can you tell us about like Barnum, the freak show, and how your film is trying to address that? Yeah, it was very difficult because as a disabled person, I think about disability as one different show, but at the same time, non-disabled to freaks, quote-unquote, of kind of being erased. So I didn't want to do that, mm. but also I didn't want to speak to an identity group that I 
the occupied. So it was really good of how do we honor everyone who either chose or had to or significantly to participate in the ritual. What are you talking about? Why this tent was so disturbing to me? You also imagine what the viewers are seeing. You say night after night, people would stream into the show, some enthusiastically, some reluctantly, and some insistent on their noble desire to open their eyes to a new perspective. And I wondered about the word noble there. Like, I know you can be a little ironic sometimes. And I wondered, do you seriously see it as a noble desire or is it complicated? They think, they think <laughs> it's noble. Yeah. We've judged me as unscriptive as possible, but I was really trying to call out the dying audience. The neon live or dead, you were the audience, you got a problem. Are the back for watching this documentary? Why are you really watching them? And, and why are you patting yourself? And I think that really became clear to me as I was watching the film. I was both like, oh, wow. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> um, you not only talk about Barnum, but you bring up another really key person in 20th century art, which was Diane Arbus, the photographer. Yeah. I'm going to re read some of this. This is very painful to listen to, very painful for me to read, but I think it's important. She said, freaks were a thing. I photographed a lot. I used to adore them. I don't quite mean they're my best friends, but they made me feel a mixture of shame and awe. And you just let that painful. <laughs> Hundred freaks are aristocrats or something uh, like that. Yeah, such a Jersey quote that can be taken so many different ways. I think. I think you're right. There's so much going on there. Painful objectification, and and then you don't say anything about it. You're going down this path, and it looks like a like a parklet, and you kind of crash, yeah. and then you go immediately into one of these kind of awkward situations where someone's trying to talk to you and praise you a little bit, but it, 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 the segue there felt interesting to me. I do have to give a shout out to editor Todd Chinger, producer Keith Orson, who's also a creative producer in crafting this film. I think it was just a problematic interaction that we wanted to show that was a bit of a crescendo, I think. And Kind of the dying Elvis quote is so rich, but also recording, recording someone. How rich can that really be? As I said, you kind of let this pass without direct commentary, and I think it's part of your style. On the other hand, sometimes you'll just in a moment reveal some interiority, something about you, like you say at one point, something like, you're talking about flies and you're like, I wonder if I feel more than other people. Another time you said, I have a dream about playing a guitar. How did you choose these little moments where you show us more about who you are as a person? Well, I think the first one about feeling more, I think that was one of the very entry points I offered to anybody. I think we all have those thoughts about perspective and how do we deal with having only one perspective and how can we really know anything beyond that? It's also 
trust you and you don't touch your mirror. Again, what you bags interesting and kind of not hoping to really talk about why. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That is the music. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I gotta be honest. Sometimes I really don't know. Yeah. Oh, I don't have the words joined to me why this work. And that's why why I got servers. You can explore these things without using words. You can get to things that words cannot get to. Let's talk about a scene that I thought was really interesting, which is you're getting on a bus. And of course, public transportation, as you mentioned, is important to you. And the bus driver, I'm sure he feels he's doing his job, but you know, he, he kind of chides you and you're like, hey, I know how to drive. He ultimately insists on you facing back towards the back of the bus. And then you let that run a little bit. The bus takes off and you continue. And I, I felt myself really being split into two in that scene. It's incredibly powerful because I was with you, like looking back, but also I was sitting with the passengers looking at you. And it's, it's a very powerful moment. I really think it makes us think about seeing and being seen. Yeah. And I think also speaks to that. There doesn't need to be the circus tent order for the freak show to be around. I'm glad you said that because I think that's what I was feeling. You know, you talk a little bit about that, right? How maybe you have joined the freak show because you made a career putting yourself in front of the camera. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting here because you don't show yourself as much, although you show us a little bit of reflections and maybe your arms and hands. And again, it's interesting what you reveal and don't. When disabled people are saying they're not hurt, there's a bad question whether my own filmmaking practices have tortured satisfied subconscious voices and they're kind of withholding my face or in the attempt to exit and other yeah, I can see that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other people. There are a few, some other people, not just these kind of awkward exchanges you have, but your family, you go back East. Your mom seems great, by the way. Again, you don't show her on camera really, but she seems supportive, non-judgmental, but also maybe gently, you know, she talks to you a bit about being an artist, about your politics. So I did think it was really interesting how much being seen came into these conversations, even you ask her to tell the story about a lollipop and how as a kid, she bought you a lollipop and you stroller and she couldn't really see you. She's pushing you forward and suddenly people were looking and then she saw that you had spread the lollipop in your hands and face. So again, it's about being seen. Yeah, I, I was just thinking there is something I think about a lot. It's like the duality of it. And, and yeah, I mean, the circus set is the perfect symbol. You're up in, Looked very intense with no out, no trace of actually being seen. Your niece, Kelsey, who later takes the camera and you gave her a, a camera credit, love that. Earlier, your sister encourages her to show you a picture in her doll catalog and she leaves through and she's, you know, every page she turns a different way. You know, it's an interesting thing because she points out to you a doll in a wheelchair and you're like, Oh, but you've never seen me in a wheelchair. So 
that's a really interesting moment about being seen and identity and perception. I really appreciate being in the film. And I want to kind of keep it at that because I don't want to add any more commentary to that. I gotcha. They seem wonderful and you yeah. totally love them and you can feel that. So let's talk about then about purgatory. <laughs> uh, there's a little section right in the middle where you take the term purgatory and you kind of use it in different ways. Like I said, you went home to your town of Bethel, Connecticut, which amazingly is the birthplace of P.T. Barnum. And you don't have your chair back east. So there's a lot of static shots of the backyard with beautiful New England backyard, the Adirondack chairs. And so we feel this lack of movement. And you talk about the purgatory, which is Bethel, Connecticut, stuck between, you know, small town and suburb. It really feels like you feel constraint there in some way. You love your family. Yeah, and it's also purgatory in that island with my family, which is a good thing, but that I can't get anywhere. Right. And then I go to a city and I got to go everywhere. Then I'm away from my family. Right. You could talk about the ethical purgatory of Ogla in that way. Right. I'm going to it. And what we just, you know, judge a bit and say, okay, I'm in Ogla now to move, but I've got my existence in Ogla. is in itself problematic. You have another scene. It's kind of a compendium of the frustrations you face. So I've said some of your scenes where you're moving your wheelchair, it's just kind of fun and we're moving forward. Or maybe a little challenging as we're moving through construction sites. You know, it's always like, I felt a little bit, oh, I was going to get around that, you know, where's he going to go? But there's one that's kind of a compendium of the frustrations. We see people standing in this crosswalk. You have to say heads up, by the way, which is something I, when I lived in New York, I probably said three times a day. Yeah. Uh, people not looking, people blocking the sidewalk with their dog, someone offering help when you haven't asked for help. Yeah. Um, and it culminates with a scene where there's a cord blocking the the ramp and the guy's trying to do a job. You get that, but it's still, can you talk about that scene? And I won't mess up the punchline to the scene. Sure, I mean, it's, it's just one of those everyday frustrations. Yeah, it's an amalgamation of all of these frustrations that I kind of pinned on to this one kind of very inconvenient and I can't very... Inconsiderate, but that is God's You know, you're going to only take so much. And I feel like I'm pretty calm throughout the film. I think it kind of shows how maybe I'm not really as calm as I seem. Well, you, you advocate for yourself. That's clear. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because there's a scene with your friend Dan, and you say, you know, they and I assume this is your producers, don't <laughs> want me to seem like a loner. And I like this meta commentary, like, we're going to do this scene because I need to show it in the scene. Well, and, and that, that was an interesting thing to tackle because we didn't want the trope of the lonely disabled person, but at the same time, isolation of people my age is yeah. pretty common. So it's like, it's like, you know, we do want to perpetuate this trope, but we also don't want to not produce something because we want to get that fight against your trope. 
I think your interactions with Dan really play off some of the other awkward interactions we see throughout. And Dan is kind of fun and he can do things like he's wheeling you around in the museum and he says, I'm going to drop you here. I'm going to go look at some other stuff. Yeah. It's kind of a mean right. joke, but it's funny, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, when you know someone for, you know, 24 years, they can meet those type of jokes. And then it's interesting because, you know, Dan, to my eye, appears to be of Asian American descent. And he talks about a story about when he was a kid, how someone was visiting his class and Dan said, I want to be president. And the guy immediately said, were you born here? Yeah, I mean, that scene is about laughing, about trauma. And that tell I think we've come in a band over and respect the trauma. is through laughing, through I think it's really interesting. The scene you do when you're first on your way to Connecticut, we are going into the airport. I don't know if it's SFO or Oakland. And already I'm anticipating, as happens this film, what kind of challenge is going to meet Reed here? Hmm. Then we're on the plane and we're moving. And as I said, this the whole film moves emotion and stillness. But then you get up on the other side and even there where they're trying to help you, it turns into this whole bureaucratic thing where they want to see your boarding pass and you eventually give them your name. It's very interesting the way you cut it, right? R-E, and you just stop. You just cut it. Can you talk about that scene a little bit? Yeah, well, airports are where disabled people's self-esteem go to die. I mean, these people who will interact with Disabled people who need assistance, they are hardworking people. A lot of them come from other countries and they are not trained properly on how to interact with disabled people. And, and that, not only the people who provide assistance, but flight attendants, pilots, they come up and start touching. And it, it's very, just visually uncomfortable. You definitely feel that. You say, don't, please don't touch me. Yeah. Um, and then you do agree to give your name, but it's clear, like, why? Why does, I just got to get yeah, there. They, they want to track me. And it's like, yeah. no, I don't want to be trapped. <laughs> yeah, I just want to go home. <laughs> yeah. He kind of have two ends to the film, I think. The first one happens back in Bethel. We take a second trip back. You go back east and don't have your chair, so you have to walk. It's very sunny, and we can see your shadow, and you're making your progress there. We're like, where, where are you going, Reed? And you arrive at the statue of P.T. Barnum that's been put up relatively recently. You say he's hard to shoot, but you do get a shot from the side that shows him, shows the plaque, the pedestal and the plaque, kind of read the words. But then you switch over, and you shoot him straight on, and he just becomes a silhouette, and we can't read the plaque. You finish. I think it's the last words is, you know, you basically say, if you're such a showman, this is a bleak. <laughs> this is pretty bleak. <laughs> and we end on that. And it's sort of he's blotted out. It felt like you were obliterating him. You were putting him on spectacle and obliterating him. Interesting. Yeah. yeah you, what do you think? <laughs> I like it. I like that <laughs> And by the way, I used to teach 19th century American literature and culture. And I taught wow. about P.P. Barnum. 
so important for our understanding of consumer culture and entertainment. Went to jail because he wanted to do shows on Sunday. Really changed the way America thinks about entertainment. So yeah. a very important figure. And as you point, an incredibly problematic <laughs> figure. Yeah. Then you finally do end with, you show shots of Lake Merritt in Oakland. And then you're driving down the sidewalk and, you know, you're running through like weeds and flowers and it's kind of fun. And it's also a little bit of a reminder of how people maybe aren't clearing the sidewalk properly. I thought that was perfect. There's a little ambiguous ending. Like, I love Oakland, but uh. I think I was going back to the film I wanted to make, which yeah. is that change your calling, do not mean the mood. Right, right. And so I'm trying to turn it into words here, like experience it. And that's what I'd say about the film is like, I think I, one of the reasons I was so drawn in is because the moments were so powerful and interesting. I love this one shot. Speaking of different perspectives, you're talking about the flies in your apartment and you have a shot, you have a, like a jar and then there's a, a fly trap. Yeah. Shoot it. So it kind of looks like the fly trap turns into a giant pole and like pierces your ceiling. You're like, what am I looking at? It's just a yeah. great moment. Let me ask you, Reed, if you could talk about it, what are you working on next? Sure, I'm working on a film about how the U.S. and Canada, to a large degree, but it's based in the U.S., how we are rapidly approaching a place where one of the acceptable treatments of disability is death. Mm. That is medical medical negligence without any criminal liability. So really showing how the opaqueness of both the medical theater as well as the justice system can cover up countless premature deaths of disabled people. Wow. Very different film from this one. Very different. Very yeah. different. So I'm really interested in seeing what you do with that. Like I said, I think this film was just really fascinating to me on all sorts. I said different perspectives, your perspective, but this interesting visual perspective, you know, I think I'm going to see the world differently now as I walk around through the BART stations. So thank you for that. Well, let me tell you, like, this movie made me think so much. I have like pages of thoughts and uh, so oh, it wow. it for me. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate this opportunity. And, and thank you. And I really look forward to what you're doing next. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it should? Great boy, CP. Yeah, Kazuo Hara. Yeah, that was made in the 60s or 70s, but it was a film that would put contemporary attempts to document disability to shame. Mm-hmm.